Welcome all to Finnerin's Wake. I do hope this episode finds you calm, refreshed, relaxed, as summer hastens toward its imminent end. Today our subject will be John Keats and his great poem, Endymion. Two brief prefatory notes were written by Keats for the purpose of introducing the greatest of his longer works, Endymion. One was kept, one rejected. The latter included the following portentous line. Quote, so this poem, Endymion, must rather be considered as an endeavor than a thing accomplished, a poor prologue to what, if I live, I humbly hope to do. End quote. In this line, there's a single phrase on which one can't but linger, to which, having been apprised of the poet's sad fate and informed of all his unrealized dreams, he's compelled time and again to return. He does so with downcast eyes, with two pensive globes about whose corners pooling tears begin to gather. It is, if I live. For Keats, all but twenty-two years of age at the time of Endymion's writing, was foredoomed by some higher power, sentenced by some jealous god, not to live very much longer beyond this given date. His sole condition, then, would not be met. He would hardly make it to the vernal noontide, to the happiest season of his second decade of life. Within three years of writing this foreboding preface, Keats would be dead. At the youthful age of twenty-five, having suffered for months the ravages of tubercular disease, the great respiratory peril with which so many Europeans were infected, the boyish poet would die. Deprived of his breath and racked by the contagion, Keats could do little else than gasp for the small amount of air that remained to him. His failing lungs, in their desperate search for renewed inflation, no sooner crumbled than collapsed. Shorn of his oxygen and depleted of his strength, within a short period of time, Keats succumbed to the terrible blight. There, in the tranquil clime of Rome, so congenial to the pure classicist spirit, 
Keats died of the horrible affliction. It was a fitting scene for so dreamy a scholar, an apt place to die for a writer whose works were populated by nearly every Latin or Grecian myth. If, in his preface, Keats foresaw his own fate, he didn't much pursue the matter. Instead, he took the opportunity to dedicate his work to a one Thomas Chatterton. Unknown to all but the most studious of English scholars, Chatterton, as a consequence of his death, had succeeded in cultivating a small but devout following. His, like Keats's, was a sad but short life, whose upshot was to be the unfelt joy of posthumous fame. Chatterton, fatherless and impecunious, was very poorly suited for a literary career. He hadn't adequate means by which to support himself, much less the disposable income required for the acquisition of more books. Still, somehow, Chatterton was able to come into possession of enough texts to round off what was a painfully informal and sparse education. That, along with his remarkable native genius, allowed him to develop a unique and precocious literary voice. His uncle gave him a stack of old parchments upon which, in the dank cellar of a Bristol church, mounds of dust and mildew had likely settled. Chatterton, undeterred by their reeking stench, devoured them entire. They were works preserved from the medieval age, an era largely untouched by contemporary thinkers and neglected by modern artists. He thus set out to create a series of poems ascribed to a one Thomas Rowley, the 15th century monk born of his own imagination. The works were good, but proved commercially unviable. Many critics, including the renowned and polymathic Horace Walpole, had suspected the young writer of crafting forgeries, an accusation to which Chatterton hadn't a convincing response. Marked as a plagiarist, and thus as a scoundrel, Chatterton struggled thereafter to find buyers of his work. When, on occasion, he did so and was paid, the amount was so paltry that he couldn't even buy himself bread. Despondent and ashamed, destitute and weary, Chatterton decided to perform one final act of poetry. It was self-violence. With whatever money remained to him, 
he purchased a vial of arsenic. After writing a valedictory poem, a farewell couplet whose final lines read, quote, Have mercy, heaven, when here I cease to live, and this last act of wretchedness forgive. Unquote. The poet consumed to the dregs the toxic drink. Within moments, the mortal tincture took its effect. He died precisely where he sat, and, when later found, was buried in a pauper's grave. He was seventeen years and nine months of age. He was also now a celebrity for the younger half of the Romantic generation. To its irreligious members, his suicide was the kind of apotheosis in which they were only too eager to believe. Chatterton, like Caesar before him, was now raised up to live in the society of the gods, in the rapt opinion of Byron, Shelley, and Keats. Chatterton had left behind his fleshy corpse, only to ascend to the level of diviner beings. None thought so more than Keats, to whom Chatterton was, at this point, a tragic idol. Aside from dedicating his endymion to the suicidal teen, he wrote in elegiac poem entitled, O Chatterton, how very sad thy fate, from which I quote, How soon that voice, majestic and elate, melted in dying murmurs. O oh, how nigh was night to thy fair morning. Thou didst die a half-blown flower, which cold blasts a mate. And so, along with this short fourteen-line poem, Endymion was inscribed to him. Endymion, unlike Paris, Narcissus, Oedipus, or Agamemnon, isn't a character with whom we are very intimately familiar. He was a shepherd of Caria, a city located outside Miletus on Anatolia's southwest coast. As is the tendency of every lad in his profession, he was handsome beyond compare. He grew strong in the bleating company of his sheep, and brawny as a consequence of his daily exertions. The sun bronzed his skin, and the flowers perfumed his flowing hair. Yet, to the unrelieved frustration of his would-be lovers, he remained stubbornly chaste. He was unsusceptible to the intrigues of the lusty maidens, from whom he received many an amorous eye. 
He was immune to the encroachment of their passionate zeal, at least until the fall of night. It was then, when the sky exchanged the light of one celestial globe for that of another, that Endymion's walls were to be breached, as he slept atop the summit of Mount Latmos, the goddess Selene, or Diana, or, in Keats's work, Cynthia, took the occasion to visit the dashing, slumberous youth. Desirous to preserve for eternity his peerless beauty, she asked Zeus to maintain Endymion in that restful, immaculate state. Olympus's thunderous monarch agreed, and promptly granted the lunar goddess her prurient wish. Suddenly deprived of the ability to consent, Endymion became the father of Selene's or Cynthia's fifty-fold brood. I leave it now to Keats to expand on this most peculiar story. Endymion, Book One A thing of beauty is a joy forever. Its loveliness increases. It will never pass into nothingness, but still will keep a bower quiet for us and a sleep full of sweet dreams and health and quiet breathing. Therefore, on every morrow are we wreathing a flowery band to bind us to the earth, spite of despondence of the inhuman dearth of noble natures, of the gloomy days, of all the unhealthy and over-darkened ways made for our searching. Yes, in spite of all, some shape of beauty moves away the pall from our dark spirits. Such the sun, the moon, trees old and young, sprouting a shady boon for simple sheep. And such are the daffodils with the green world they live in, and clear rills that for themselves a cooling covert make against the hot season, the mid-forest break, rich with a sprinkling of fair musk-rose blooms, and such too is the grandeur of the dooms we have imagined for the mighty dead. 
all lovely tales that we have heard or read. An endless fountain of immortal drink pouring on to us from the heaven's brink. Nor do we merely feel these essences for one short hour. No, even as the trees that whisper round a temple become soon dear as the temple's self, so does the moon, the passion, posy, glories, infinite, haunt us till they become a cheering light unto our souls, and bound to us so fast, that whether there be shine or gloom overcast, they always must be with us, or we die. Therefore, tis with full happiness that I will trace the story of Endymion. The very music of the name has gone into my being, and each pleasant scene is growing fresh before me as the green of our own valleys. So I will begin, now while I cannot hear the city's din, now, while the early butters are just new and run in mazes of the youngest hue about old forests, while the willow trails its delicate amber and the dairy pails bring home increase of milk, and as the year grows lush in juicy stalks. I'll smoothly steer my little boat for many quiet hours, with streams that deepen freshly into bowers. Many and many a verse I hope to write before the daisies, vermeil-rimmed and white, hide in deep herbage, and ere yet the bees hum about globes of clover and sweet peas, I must be near the middle of my story. Oh, may no wintry season, bare and hoary, see it half finished. But let autumn bold, with universal tinge of sober gold, be all about me when I make an end. And now, at once, adventuresome, I send my herald thought into a wilderness. There let its trumpet blow and quickly dress my uncertain path with green, that I may speed easily onward, thorough flowers and weed. Upon the sides of Latmos was outspread a mighty forest, for the moist earth fed so plenteously, all weed-hidden roots into o'erhanging boughs and precious fruits. And it had gloomy shades 
sequestered deep, where no man went. And if from shepherd's keep a lamb strayed far adown those inmost glens, never again saw he the happy pens, whither his brethren, bleating with content, over the hills at every nightfall went. Among the shepherds, Twas believed ever that not one fleecy lamb which thus did sever from the white flock, but passed unworried by angry wolf or parred with prying head, until it came to some unfooted plains where fed the herds of Pan. I great his gains, who thus one lamb did lose, Paths there were many, winding through palmy fern and rushes fenny and ivy banks, all leading pleasantly to a wide lawn, whence one could only see stems thronging all around between the swell of turf and slanting branches. Who could tell? the freshness of the space of heaven above, edged round with dark treetops, through which a dove would often beat its wings, and often too a little cloud would move across the blue. Full in the middle of this pleasantness, there stood a marble altar, with a tress of flowers budded newly, and the dew had taken fairy fantasies to strew daisies upon the sacred sward last eve, and so the dawn light in pomp receive. For twas the morn, Apollo's upward fire made every eastern cloud a silvery pyre, a brightness so unsullied that therein a melancholy spirit well might win oblivion and melt out this essence fine into the wind's rain-scented eglantine gave temperate sweets to that well-wooing sun. The lark was lost in him. Cold springs had run to warm their chilliest bubbles in the grass. Man's voice was on the mountains, and the mass of nature's lives and wonders pulsed tenfold to feel the sunrise and its glories old. Now, while the silent workings of the dawn were busiest, into that self-same lawn, all suddenly, with joyful cries, there sped a troop of little children, garlanded, who gathering round the altar seemed to pry, earnestly round as wishing to espy some folk of holiday. Nor had they waited for many moments, ere their ears were sated with a faint breath of music, 
which even then filled out its voice and died away again. Within a little space again it gave its airy swellings with a gentle wave, to light-hung leaves its smoothest echoes breaking, through copse-clad valleys ere their death overtaking, the surgy murmurs of the lonely sea. And now, as deep into the wood as we, might mark a lynx's eye, their glimmered light, fair faces and a rush of garments white, plainer and plainer showing, till at last into the widest alley they all passed, making directly for the woodland altar. O kindly muse, let not my weak tongue falter in telling of this goodly company, of their old piety, and of their glee. But let a portion of ethereal dew fall on my head, and presently unmoo my soul, that I may dare, in wayfaring, to stammer where old Chaucer used to sing. Leading the way, young damsels danced along, bearing the burden of a shepherd's song, each having a white wicker overbrimmed, with April's tender younglings next well-trimmed, a crowd of shepherds with as sunburnt looks as may be read of in Arcadian books, such as sat listening round Apollo's pipe when the great deity for earth too ripe let his divinity overflowing die in music through the vales of Thessaly. Some idly trailed their sheep hooks on the ground, and some kept up a shrilly mellow sound with ebon-tipped flutes close after these, now coming from beneath the forest trees. The venerable priest, full soberly, begirt with ministering looks, always his eye, steadfast upon the matted turf he kept. And after him his sacred vestments swept. From his right hand there swung a vase, milk-white, of mingled wine, out-sparkling generous light. And in his left he held a basket full of all sweet herbs that searching eye could cull. Wild thyme and valley lilies whiter still than Leda's love and cresses from the rill. His aged head, crowned with beechen wreath, seemed like a pole of ivy in the teeth of winter hoar. Then came another crowd of shepherds, lifting in due time aloud their share of the ditty. After them appeared, up followed by a multitude that reared their voices to the clouds, a fair-wrought car, easily rolling so as scarce to mar the freedom of three steeds of dapple brown, 
who stood therein did seem of great renown among the throng. His youth was fully blown, showing like Ganymede to manhood grown. And for those simple times his garments were a chieftain king's. Beneath his breast half bare was hung a silver bugle, and between his nervy knees there lay a boar spear keen. A smile was on his countenance, he seemed to common lookers-on, like one who dreamed of idleness in groves Elysian. But there were some who feelingly could scan a lurking trouble in his nether lip, and see that oftentimes the reins would slip through his forgotten hands. Then would they sigh, and think of yellow leaves of owlets cry, of logs piled solemnly. Ah, well a day, why should our young Endymion pine away? Soon the assembly in a circle ranged, stood silent round the shrine. Each look was changed to sudden veneration. Women meek beckoned their sons to silence, while each cheek of virgin bloom paled gently for slight fear. Endymion, too, without a forest peer, stood wan and pale, and with an awed face among his brothers of the mountain chase. In midst of all, the venerable priest eyed them with joy from greatest to the least, and, after lipping up his aged hands, thus spake he, Men of Latmos, shepherd bands, whose care it is to guard a thousand flocks, the weather descended from beneath the rocks that overtop your mountains, whether come from valleys where the pipe is never dumb, or from your swelling downs where sweet air stirs blue hair bells lightly, and where prickly furs buds lavish gold. Or yea, whose precious charge Nibble their fill at ocean's very marge, Whose mellow reeds are touched with sounds forlorn By the dim echoes of old Triton's horn, Mothers and wives, who day by day prepare The scrip with needments for the mountain air, And all ye gentle girls who foster up Utterless lambs, and in a little cup Will put choice honey for a favoured youth, Yea, every one attend, for in good truth our vows are wanting to our great god Pan. Are not our lowing heifers sleeker than night's swollen mushrooms? Are not our wide plains speckled with countless fleeces? Have not rains greened over April's lap? Though howling sad sickens our fearful ooze, And we have had great bounty from Endymion, our lord. The earth is glad. The merry lark has poured his early song Against yon breezy sky, 
that spread so clear over our solemnity. Thus ending, on the shrine he heaped a spire of teeming sweets and kindling sacred fire. Anon he stained the thick and spongy sod with wine in honor of the shepherd god. Now while the earth was drinking it, and while bay leaves were crackling in the fragrant pile, and gummy frankincense was sparkling bright neath smothering parsley, and a hazy light spread grayly eastward, thus a chorus sang. O thou, whose mighty palace roof doth hang from jagged trunks, and overshadoweth eternal whispers, glooms, the birth, life, death of unseen flowers in heavy peacefulness, who lovest to see the Hamadriot's dress. Their ruffled locks were meeting hazels darken, and through whole solemn hours dost sit and hearken the dreary melody of bedded reeds in desolate places where dank moisture breeds the pipey hemlock to strange overgrowth, bethinking thee how melancholy loath thou wast to lose fair shrinks. Do thou now, by thy love's milky brow, by all the trembling mazes that she ran, hear us, great Pan. Even while they brought the burden to a close, a shout from the whole multitude arose that lingered in the air like dying rolls of abrupt thunder when Ionian shoals of dolphins bob their noses through the brine. Meantime, on shady levels, mossy, fine, young companies nimbly began dancing to the swift treble pipe and humming string. I, those fair living forms swam, heavenly to tunes forgotten. Out of memory, fair creatures, whose young children's children bred, Thermopylae its heroes, not yet dead, but in old marbles ever beautiful. High genitors, unconscious did they cull time's sweet first fruits. They danced to weariness, and then in quiet circles did they press the hillock turf and caught the latter end of some strange history, potent to send a young mind from its bodily tenement. Or they might watch the quiet pictures intent on either side, pitying the sad death of Hyacinthus when the cruel breath of Zephyr slew him, Zephyr penitent, who now Ere Phoebus mounts the firmament, Fondles the flower amid the sobbing rain. The archers, too, 
upon a wider plane, beside the feathery whizzing of the shaft and the dull twanging bowstring in the raft branch down sweeping from all tall top, called up a thousand thoughts to envelop those who would watch. Perhaps the trembling knee and frantic gape of lonely Niobe, poor lonely Niobe, when her lovely young were dead and gone, and her caressing tongue lay a lost thing upon her paley lip, and very, very deadliness did nip her motherly cheeks. Aroused from this sad mood by one who at a distance loud hallooed, uplifting his strong bow into the air, many might after brighter visions stare, after the Argonauts, in blind amaze, tossing about on Neptune's restless ways, until from the horizon's vaulted side there shot a golden splendor far and wide, spangling those million poutings of the brine with quivering ore. T'was even an awful shine from the exaltation of Apollo's bow, a heavenly beacon in their dreary woe. Who thus were ripe for high contemplating might turn their steps towards the sober ring where sat Endymion and the aged priest among shepherds gone in eld whose looks increased the silvery setting of their mortal star. There they discoursed upon the fragile bar that keeps us from our homes, ethereal, and what our duties there to nightly call Vesper, the beauty crest of summer weather, to summon all the downiest clouds together for the sun's purple couch, to emulate in ministering the potent rule of fate, with speed of fire-tailed exhalations, to tint her pallid cheek with bloom, who cons sweet posy by moonlight. Besides these, a world of other unguessed offices, anon they wandered by divine converse into Elysium, vying to rehearse each one his own anticipated bliss. One felt heart certain that he could not miss his quick-gone love among fair-blossomed boughs, where every zephyr sigh pouts and endows her lips with music for the welcoming. Another wished mid that eternal spring, to meet his rosy child with feathery sails sweeping, I earnestly, through almond veils, who, suddenly, should stoop through the smooth wind, and with the balmiest leaves his temples bind, and ever after, 
through those regions be his messenger, his little Mercury. Some were athirst in soul to see again their fellow huntsmen over the wide champagne in times long past. To sit with them and talk of all the chances in their earthly walk, comparing joyfully their plenteous stores of happiness to when upon the moors benighted the close they huddled from the cold and shared their famished scripts. Thus all outtold their fond imaginations, saving him whose eyelids curtained up their jewels dim and dimian. Yet hourly had he striven to hide the cankering venom that had riven his fainting recollections. Now indeed his senses had swooned off. He did not heed the sudden silence or the whispers low. Or the old eyes dissolving at his woe. Or anxious calls or close of trembling palms, or maiden sigh, that grief itself embalms. But in the self-same fixed trance he kept, like one who on the earth had never slept. I, even as dead still as a marble man, frozen in that old tale, Arabian. And with that, dear listeners, I bid you adieu.